Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I am one of the teaching elders here at Redeemer Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, you chose an interesting Sunday to join us. The last Sunday I preached, uh, Marcus left me with a passage on persecution. Um, and today we're addressing what the Bible has to say about adultery and lust. So I'll give you a few moments to leave uh, if you'd like. Um, but it's uh, something that I think is an important subject that Jesus addresses quite clearly that the church has a tendency, and the universal church has a tendency to pull away from or shy away from. And so my heart is that today as we open the word of God, we would let God's word speak. And just know this, some, some of my friends have known me over a decade here, and so they know I can be quite direct. And so I've been getting kind of like phishing texts this week and passing comments and like, uh, hey man, you know, do I need to wear my proverbial cup or whatever. And just remember, I have to show up with you guys next Sunday too. And so this isn't a gotcha sermon. My actual prayer is that this would not be a message of condemnation, but would be an invitation to liberation. And so trying to be mindful of the audience by which I present, I want to address some direct issues, but I might use words like explicit material instead of something that we might say. That's not me being afraid to talk about it. In fact, if Pastor Marcus and the elders think we need to discuss this further in an adult context, I have plenty to say. Uh, if the men need to get together and have a chat, I have even more to say. But for the sake of Sunday morning worship, and for the sake of the fact that the substance of it in and of itself can ride a long way with implication without explicit statements, um, I think that's going to be best for the context by which we're diving in today. So when I say explicit material, you, if you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parent, and they might say, not yet. I'll leave that to mom and dad. If you have your Bible with you, open with me to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And last week, Pastor Marcus carried us through the passage talking about Jesus teaching on murder, um, specifically addressing the audience and uh, calling out the gotcha mentality of the Pharisees. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Pharisees were a group of Jewish believers who knew and memorized the, the Jewish scriptures. They were very well versed in the law. They knew the Ten Commandments very well. And they were engaged in pointing out the flaws in other Jewish people who didn't adhere to it as well, while also playing some form of jujitsu with the law themselves so they can get away with it. And so typically when you're looking at God's word, most people approach the issue of truth in the scripture either looking how to get away with sin or looking how to get away from sin, but both of those approaches are incomplete. The first one leads you to a pathway that actually doesn't bring you life at all. It actually ends up in death. The second one of getting away from sin and focusing solely on getting away from sin will often guide you to more pretty sins. The reality is, is, is escape from also needs to include escape to. So when we're leaving something behind, repentance is an invitation to something more, back to the one who made us, back to the one who redeems us, to the one who created us from a relationship, for a relationship with himself and with one another. 
His whole creative intent was the purpose and context of relationship. Sin, though, destroys relationship and therefore forced throughout the Old Testament to force us to a place of transactional living. The law actually set forth transaction to lead us to ultimate need of acknowledgement of our sin and that the only hope we have for redemption is not our adherence to a set of rules. These guidelines were intended for relationship, how to re-relate with God and re-relate with one another. Jesus Christ comes, and now we find him in the Sermon on the Mount, bringing fuller context to this under, under, uh, underlying relational context of the kingdom of God. It's not a kingdom so that we can go have cool stuff and have a really cool room in the mansion as much as it's a place to come and commune once again with God and to commune once again in healthy ways with each other. And so when, when, when Jesus is teaching that, hey, murder is obviously breaking the sixth commandment and expands upon it. It says, if you have anger in your heart towards someone else, that is the same as committing murder. Now, you may not go to prison for it or get arrested for it, but that same initial intent is what then produces the fruit of ultimately committing murder. But again, it's a relational context. Another thing must be said about the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments aren't meant to be measured in isolation, but seen collectively as a whole. The commandments are primarily guidelines on how to relate with God and how to relate with one another because we're relating with God. And so when we want to take one command ahead of another command to try to find a way to get our own way, whatever direction it's going, that's more than issue of a heart being hard. And so when Jesus refers to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, you can be completely right and still be wrong. Because ultimately, Jesus is after your heart, not just your performance. So as he challenges this, we see God's redemptive plan through Jesus is to move sinners from the economy of sin to life-giving, transformational relationships. You have to understand that sin is essentially on a mission to prevent and destroy meaningful Christ-centered relationships. It's relationship-destroying. Looking at explicit material takes something that was created as good and as holy and as meaningful before a husband and a wife and turning it and perverting it and dehumanizing and objectifying people, which then changes the way we view people that we're actually relating with. Our anger begins to diminish any ability to trust one another so that we always go into relationships not with vulnerability but with overwhelming sense of suspicion and transaction. You see that as you go through these different commandments and as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is paving a way that is far riskier in some ways but it's in the place where you will find communion with God. We have to remember that sin is parasitic and that it latches onto anything created and called good. And it either exaggerates it or it diminishes it. All of God's creation was created good, but sin perverts it. It minimizes it, it exaggerates it. 
And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, But you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's quoting the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but he expands it. You see, adultery is betraying God by betraying someone who is yours in order to pursue another, to find meaning, satisfaction, companionship, vulnerability, intimacy with someone who is not yours. It's a sinful and inappropriate redirection of affections, emotions, and physical connectedness outside of God's intent and design. And so what Jesus is calling the Pharisees to, he's saying, hey, look, you might be good with your actions, but let's check your heart. Let's check the heart. But he's also speaking to the 10th commandment, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This coveting is longing for someone who is not yours. And so it's really easy to point out the pathway for guys, because we're visual beings, that engage with this kind of fantasy life that takes us and connects us with thought and sometimes deed with other people who are not our spouse. But we must also be cautious that fantasy of, I wish my husband was more like this guy, or I wish I was married to someone more like this person, is equally as unfaithful when it comes to the matter of the heart. See, the Pharisees want to compare. Well, it's not as bad as this one, or, or yeah, this one, I'm just mad, but I'm not, I'm not murdering. Jesus says, no, it's the same thing. It comes from the same place. This discontentment, this unsatisfaction, this longing for someone or something else outside of the context of where you have it is ultimately discontentment in the Lord. He says, look, pursuing this, if you just think of someone that way, you're guilty. It's interesting, back when I was a youth minister, or I was an intern, so I didn't, I didn't facilitate this one. Because now when I say it, it's really weird. But they're trying to be authentic with students and everything else, and they took magazines and took a group of the junior high guys and a group of junior high girls, and they're like, tear out things that you find attractive. And then make a, a mural with things you find attractive. And so the, the girls were like, you know, a, a strong guy, you know, carrying a, a, a box, you know, a guy walking with a briefcase and a nice suit. You know, maybe a, a chest or some shoulders. The middle school boys, we had to tame down a bit and cover up a bit. But it was like even like a neck, the way a neck connects to a shoulder. Right? I mean, they just, and, and the girls were looking at it like, really? Seriously? So if you think it was a good idea, I called it. If you think it was maybe a dangerous idea, someone else did. So... But just emphasizing the differences of what attraction and what leads. And, and, and men, arguably, in my season of ministry and working with a lot, a lot of men struggling with this particular issue and some women struggling with this, this issue, 
a lot of it begins in the mind and from the eye and from the imagination and stems from a place of discontentment and dissatisfaction. And when we're discontent, we have a tendency to want to latch on to the letter of the law and being unwilling to submit to the spirit of it. And so we have to understand how this progresses and how it works. If I had time, I would go headlong into the, the reasons why men give themselves to these habits and why women approach it differently than guys do, but that goes beyond the scope of the sermon. But there are a lot of reasons that are sinful for sure, but not unforgivable. He goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So during our invitation today, I'm kidding. Um, I sent a picture to some friends yesterday of a long screwdriver and a hatchet. And I said, I'm getting ready for our invitation tomorrow. Eye plucking and hand chopping. Don't worry, I did more studying and realized there's more to this than aestheticism. I wish Origen, one of the church fathers, knew that ahead of time. Uh, he mutilated himself, and then at the Council of Nicaea, they made it very clear that we're not to do that. Yes. It would be a mess. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. The purpose of hyperbole is to emphasize a point with great emphasis. So it's not to diminish something. It's not to blow it off and say, ha ha, so funny. He's saying it is better for you to go without than to offend a holy God. It is better for you to be without and enter into the kingdom maimed than it is to offend a holy and perfect God. The primary issue with our adultery and with our lust and our anger and murder, those things first and foremost, they offend God. And God is holy and flawless and perfect. And he created us from a place of love for the purpose of love. But when we say, oh, well, boys will be boys or... It's just inside. I'm just, I'm not doing anything with it. We are minimizing not just our sin, but the holiness of God. We are taking lightly the cross of Christ who was blameless yet mutilated for your sin and for mine. And so when we minimize sin, we minimize the cost and we say we want to be all about grace, but there is no grace apart from the understanding of the law and what is required. Grace is a free gift that we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so when we minimize our sin, especially sins of the heart, especially sins that are relationship-breaking, first and foremost, we're not just offending the person we're angry with or the person we're cheating on. We're offending God. We're doubting God. We're not trusting God. We're not hoping in God. And we act like Adam who hides and blames 
rather than Christ who comes forward and takes responsibility for things not even his fault. We blame our spouse, or we blame the culture, or we blame the pop-ups, or we blame our friends, or we blame and we hide and we say it's not that bad when really we're dying on the inside. And so when we stop taking seriously our sin, we start living a numbness towards the holiness of God, and start living naturally in the alienation from God. The old word is mortification. What Jesus was saying led to origin mutilating himself, physically removing parts of his body. But Jesus isn't literally saying, cut it out, cut it off. But he is calling us as followers of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, to mortification, which is the act of subduing one's bodily desires, not always saying yes to whatever our impulses are calling us to. And when we do lean into it and give into it, we realize it, we stop, and we turn direction, we change our thinking, we repent. The eye is foreseeing. And look, it's not inappropriate to look at it and appreciate a person's beauty. God has created beautiful things, beautiful people. That's not lust. The sin of lust is an engagement of the imagination and positioning oneself to engage with her or him as one engages with his or her spouse, whether in fantasy or in activity. It's a sin of lust. It's an engagement of the imagination, positioning oneself to engage with her or him as one engages with one's spouse. And so with guys looking on our phones or looking on the computer or looking at the store or thinking about people we know and letting our imagination just run without realizing this isn't productive and this is a dangerous path. But it also comes, ladies, from romantic comedies. When we're longing for a guy to be more like this guy, why can't he be more spontaneous? Why can't he be more free? Why can't he have abs like that? Because you can hide and say, well, I might think about another husband, but I'm not thinking about that intimacy type thing. What do you think happens in marriage? So even if you're not overtly going down that path, you're still tiptoeing down that slide. Well, that's not the same thing. Well, the guy can say, lust is not the same thing. It's the same. It's dissatisfaction in God, dissatisfaction in one another, dissatisfaction in what our selectively sovereign God, as we approach him, no, he's sovereign, refusing to trust Christ and find joy with whom God has placed us with, And then looking for some loophole to get out. I think that's dangerous. Jesus speaks of the eye as being a pathway to the soul. Jesus speaks in Luke 11, verses 33 through 35. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. So that one, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, 
Your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in, your, in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of darkness, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What we look at, what we ingest, what we fantasize about, what we imagine, it matters. It affects us. It's not siloed off. And you may have been indulging your fantasy life for decades and have been able to put it off in a box and pull it out when you want to. But many of you, if you're honest, it's raging out of control like a forest fire that might be contained but never fully put out. God has more for you. God is more for you. See, the good eye is spiritually healthy. It's a way of looking at things that are biblically informed. When we say read your Bible, it's not just so you can quote stuff when we're having a guy's night and and pretend like everything's fine because you know verses and you share them out of context or you invoke them to win a ball game. It's thinking biblically through the lens of the gospel as kingdom dwellers and allowing that to then be the grid by which it it, it, it's seen through. Notice it says, if your eye causes you to sin. Some people are more sensitive to things than other people. Some things are just unwise to consume. Remember a few sermons ago, I, I, I lovingly said, hey, it's time to grow up. This is another thing. It's time to grow up. Be aware of what causes you to sin. And then start putting it away. Well, I can control having two beers. I have two beers and then I stop. But then after two beers, you go and look at your phone and explicit material because you're more relaxed. Maybe you should pause. See, things are connected. It's weird. See, we take the, well, I'm not committing adultery, but I'm really mad. Oh, we're all good. Only one out of ten. I'm making a 90. One's broken. It's all broken. Relationship with God, relationship with each other. And I'm not giving this to you to to put another burden on your back. I'm calling you to look to the one who took your burden on the cross and alleviates that burden to a place of freedom that you're then able to walk free from having to give in to the temptation. You're free to say, I'm going to turn away. I'm going to put that away. I'm going to look elsewhere, not in some religion, religiosity. The Lord loves you in your filth as much as he loves you on your days of victory. But when you understand that, you're no longer having to hide, but you're exposed. You can walk in liberty more frequently, empowered by the Spirit with other believers. That matters. John Stott, an old pastor, puts it this way. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Yeah, it's way better than what I could come up with. So I just, I'm quoting him. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Just because we're forgiven doesn't mean we can gallivant through life unaware of our our flesh.
That, that's missing the point of relationship with God and just using the benefits of God. One of our most unique gifts that sets human beings apart is actually our imagination. Stott goes on to say, our vivid imagination is a precious gift of God and enriches the quality of life. He goes on to make this observation and instruction for women. He says, it would be silly to legislate about fashions, but wise to ask them to make this distinction. It is one thing to make yourself attractive. It is another thing to make yourself deliberately seductive. It's one thing to want to be attractive and take care of yourself. It's another thing to proactively seek to be seductive and draw that kind of energy and attention toward yourself. Same for guys, but most of us don't seem to have that problem as much. Can't speak for all of you guys, but... This imagination, how do people persevere persecution? How do people persevere hard things? It's because they imagine a better day that the Lord will bring, whether in this life or the next. The imagination is very important and needs to be rightly guided and re-guided towards things. It's funny when I work with business leaders and they say, oh man, we're going to increase revenue. And I'm like, but don't you understand it's going to increase equipment and people and problems and taxes. And uh, no, 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 I, I, want, I, want, I want to do this. Are you sure? And then we usually see the growth and they're like, don't know about that. Because we, we lose our imagination or we, we're skewed. Now, I know several of my friends here are like me. We're pretty positive and shocked when life actually happens. If everything would just go the way I imagined it, things would be perfect in my world. So the imagination is an important piece of the human existence. It's a unique part of being a human being. It's a central part into the, 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 the living out of our faith in and through hard things. That imagination that, that God and intimacy with God in, in a renewed marriage or a future marriage will be better off long term and honoring to God when I take captive my imagination. And understanding my imagination is, is constantly seeking data to fuel the slides. And so every time we allow ourselves or expose ourselves to various things, we have to be aware of what really works in us and be mindful of those things. Amen. I always tease and I say, the Pottery Barn magazine is like an inappropriate magazine for some ladies that would be inappropriate for guys. They're like, look at that sectional. I, I've got to find a way to get that sectional. I mean, it's breeding dissatisfaction and longing and coveting. And I'm not making light of, of the sin of lust by any means, but man, I don't know a soul in this room of age that's never, ever been tempted this direction. And if you're like, I've never been tempted that direction, there's nine other commandments to walk you through. And if you're like, I've never fallen in those, I think you're a liar. There's got to be one about that in there. <laughs> Goes on to say in verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Your hand is the acting out of, the leaning into, the participating with. Jesus talks of the eyes, the hand, and later in the scriptures, the feet. The feet carry you into sin. The hands deliver or live out what has been in the imagination. But remember, the hand in in scriptural context is important. The right hand of the Father is a place of honor. And so to dishonor the hand by acting in a way that is dishonoring to our God is a big deal. Stott says, it is better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It is better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. That economy is appropriate. What's at stake here? Our souls. Our souls are at stake. If you do not have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you are standing in condemnation before the Holy Father. I'm not saying that because I'm happy to say it. It breaks my heart. But if, if you do not know Jesus and you do not follow Jesus and you do not love Jesus, there's a bigger issue at stake than lust or anger. It's a state of your soul before the Father, which can only be made right through trusting in his son Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and hoping and promise in his promise of returning. So this weight of his message and passage here was for those who believed they were already inheriting the kingdom of God, like those of us in the faith today. And he's talking about, like, look, it's, it's, it, matters. it matters. It matters. The primary issue first is regeneration, being born again, being a believer. That's the foundational heart issue we have to address. If you keep falling into lust or living out in adultery, the first question we have to address is, do you know Jesus in a real life-changing, consequential, spiritual exchange way? Because if we don't, we can, we can change your habits and maybe fix your behaviors and chop certain pieces out of your life, but that's not going to save your soul. You'll end up like the Pharisees. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, but regeneration is meaningless to people who have a negative view of sin and do not realize its profundity. This, then, is the point at which we must start. So if you dislike the New Testament doctrine of sin, it simply means that you are not a Christian. For you cannot be one without believing that you must be born again and without realizing that nothing but the death of Christ upon the cross saves you and reconciles you to God. Nothing else. Not your good behavior, not your nice deeds, not your generosity, not your Bible reading, not your your service at the church, not saying nice words, not staying with a difficult spouse. None of that is going to save your souls. It's not enough. None of it. It's just not enough. It still leaves the account way negative. It still leaves the sin weighing heavily on you. And so if you're not yet born again, inviting you from lust and to take captive your thoughts and to retrain your imagination will seem absolutely foolish. If you spend all of your time trying to figure out how to get away with sin, the sins you enjoy, and maybe picking out the sins of others, or constantly measuring your holiness against another human being, you're going to the wrong source, and I'm concerned for your soul. True evangelism, Lloyd goes on to say, 
Because for this doctrine of sin must always start by preaching the law. This means we must explain that mankind is confronted by the holiness of God, by his demands, and also by the consequences of sin. By the consequences of our sin. There are consequences to sin. You might say, well, I've trusted Jesus, I've done these things, God saved me. Right, but he didn't just save you to go to heaven later. He saved you to enjoy a relationship with him now. And to have redemptive relationships with each other now. So when he's talking about murder and anger, when he talks about adultery and lust, it's a relational issue that must be addressed. It must be addressed. Our natural tendency towards sin is to either significantly minimize or greatly maximize one over the other. Well, this person does this, or this person does that, or this whatever. To the Lord, sin is sin. That doesn't mean it doesn't affect our personal relationships in unique ways. I'm not trying to diminish that fact. There are certain sins that are harder to recoup trust on and to build, rebuild relationship on. But we got to be careful on how we approach those things. If you want to cling on to the letter of the law and the way you adjudicate on wrongs done, you will be measured by that same standard. And let me help you, you will fail. We must understand the spirit of the law. Look, the sins of our spouse, our children, our friends, our fellow believers, non-believers, are first and foremost an offense against a one true and holy God. And when we allow our offense to come first, that's a good sign of spiritual immaturity. The primary problem of a disobedient child or a wayward spouse is first and foremost their soul before a holy God. Stop. And so that should slow us down and provoke some compassion. doesn't mean we don't have anger, as Marcus said last week. We can have anger and not sin, not seek retribution. So as it provokes a deep concern and grief, first for ourselves, as I see other people sinning, and as I grow in my faith, it takes me back to the mirror to see this big log that seems to regrow itself. Have to take it out and come back with tenderness. Do I always respond that way? No, but I'm gradually moving more that direction. The first response to sin before anger now is sorrow of my own and of theirs. Most of the time. But a lot of us approach when we're wronged with a punitive mindset, meaning we want to see payment for what a person has done. We're seeking retribution. We're seeking repayment. And here's the problem with that mindset if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're seeking repayment, you're denying the cross. I'm not saying you don't call a tough, smart lawyer if you've been in a truck wreck. What I'm saying is interpersonal relationships, as, as far as they go, if we're looking for repayment, that's not relationship. Discipline, however, is a correction, a redirection, a change of course. 
What's truly at stake in this whole conversation about lust, about adultery, about anger, about murder, is souls and eternity. It's a big deal. For those of you here today that are born again, you're followers of Jesus Christ, who are deep in the darkness of lust and maybe even living out adultery. Here's the good news. If you follow Jesus, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay in the dark. There's been a a door open and a light shining in. You don't have to carry that curse any longer. You don't have to say, I'm too far down that path. Maybe on earthly relationships, some might be far gone, but ultimately with Christ, he's calling you to more of him. He's calling you to freedom in him. You don't have to stay there. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, you don't have to continue that path. Christian, you've been purchased. Christian, you've been liberated to seek freedom from the things that rob us of relationship with God and relationship with each other. You don't have to live in that place any longer. There is a way out. And for those of you who refuse to repent, who know you're guilty of breaking this law, I'm concerned for your soul. If your inner defense lawyer is saying, yeah, but you don't understand, or you don't know this, or when I look at that, I don't think about all. Listen, I'm not here to judge you. If you're not in Christ and you're living out in sin, you're judged already. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're choosing a mud pie compared to a feast, as C.S. Lewis says. If you won't repent, I'm concerned for your soul. If you can't break free, ask for help. Don't walk this journey alone. Don't live in the, the prison of your own thought life. Ask for help. Because Jesus empowers us to break free from the bondage of sin, which leads to death, and come into the light. You don't have to keep going down that path. You can repair a relationship. You can be restored. You can walk in the newness of life. There's much more to be said for men and for women. There's much more to be said in the context of marriage. But let me say this today. Jesus is not playing around. His life is on the line. It was on the line. And he's willing to give it so that you and I would not continue on in the slavery. But by the death of, on the cross and the power of the resurrection, we too can walk free. Let's walk free today.